welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia and I'm presenting solo today. Joining me today as my guest is Nicole Gibson, who is a second year PhD student on the American Studies and History track. Nicole, welcome. Thank you so much, Georgia. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, um, well, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I specifically study the criminalization of homelessness in Washington, D.C. at the end of the 20th century. Okay, Criminalization of homelessness at the end of the 20th century was a really slow process, Georgia, um, specifically in the District of Columbia. And this began around 1984. With the uh, Initiative 17 and the right to overnight shelter. So basically what happened was is activists who were responsible for helping pass Initiative 17 began to lose their grip on the narrative of compassion. Public sympathy began to wane. It wasn't just the activists who had a hand in this emergence, but it was also the inefficacy of of new federal legislation like the McKinney Homeless Assistance Act of 1987 that fed the compassion fatigue of the 1990s in the District of Columbia, America's nation's capital. Uh, The road from compassion fatigue to zero tolerance took about seven years. So in 1997, when the district began its zero tolerance policing program, uh, criminalization of homelessness had already begun with legislation like the Panhandling Act of 1993. So how do I, how did I come to the University of Manchester? Well, I'll tell you, I I decided to leave France, which is my second country of uh, nationality. I'm American and French. So I decided to leave France because I felt like studying in French, Georgia, was a little bit too limiting in in terms of being able to deal with issues like race. So I got accepted at several universities in France and the UK, but I chose University of Manchester for its excellent uh, rating. You know, it's a part of the Russell Group. There's that whole red brick university mystique, you know. But I also got really lucky because um, my supervisor, Dr. David Brown, he's he doesn't specialize in my period of history, but he's an excellent professional who knows how to create a safe space for me to learn and grow professionally. Also, I've got to get a sh- give a shout out to my girl, Dr. Carrie Pimblot, a very good lecturer here in the uh, university's uh, international history department. She's also an excellent scholar. She is uh, my own personal cheerleader and sounding board. So in the end, I, I really made a good choice, not only for the ranking, but for the substance, the people, the, the the skill group of, you know, being able to support students like myself. And, you know, it's, I think I made an excellent choice. So as you said, yeah, I'm a second year PhD student. I'm in American history, and I'm currently working on a blog post about aesthetics and exclusion called Beauty and the Beat street homelessness, and the anatomy of disorder. I'm finishing up a working draft of my chapter three of my thesis, and I'm preparing two conference papers, one for the history, social history uh, society, and the other for historians of the 20th century U.S. Uh, I'll be reading both of them in June. That's about it. Wow. Uh, so that was a very comprehensive introduction to you and your research. Thank you so much. I also want to express my love for Carrie Pimblot. She's uh, She doesn't directly supervise me but she has been a very uh, encouraging voice and top notch huh? a truly wonderful historian and also i'm going to be presenting at hotkiss 
Excellent. Well, we'll see you there. All right, then. Um, and I will definitely try and make it to your paper. It was uh, great to hear a little bit about your uh, your journey here. So having lived in America and France and now England, do you have how are you finding it here? Well, actually, life is much easier, several counts. Administratively, it's easier. I just became uh, pre-settled, despite all of the shenanigans with the Brexit. <laughs> I went on uh, at midnight on the, 20, the 30th of March to get the pre-settled status. It took about 10 days from the time I punched in all the necessary information to actually getting the pre-settled note on Sunday around the 7th of April. It really didn't take that long at all. So it's not... Uh, I encourage everybody who can get pre-settled to do so as soon as possible because it's it's not that difficult. But uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm so glad that I'm here because it's much easier administratively to live here than in France where it's just uh, much more difficult in terms of logistics, paperwork, etc. And then in my own home uh, country of um, America, there's a lot of issues right now with the, our current occupant of the White House as well as some serious, serious profound, how can we say, profound problems with race, which touches me personally. I think that's uh, quite a mild way of, of putting it, perhaps, although we see the same issues globally. We do. Course. But to the degree that it's uh, in play in the United States, I don't think so. Not personally, my experience has been it's been much easier to me for me to be a woman of color here in the UK than, than in the United States. And how about in France? France, it's, uh, I would say, comes in a, a, a distant second because there is racism. They just uh, uh, don't talk about it. <laughs> just sweep the problem under the rug and ignore the elephant in the room. That's how race is handled in France. And well, that can work for a while, but in the end, you've got to have the hard conversations about race, which weren't happening, which is why I decided to come here. It's interesting to hear those insights and kind of heartening to hear that you, you feel that the UK is a more welcoming environment at least because it doesn't feel like a proud moment for us with the shenanigans and so on yes i I don't think anybody really knows what's happening with brexit so i've stopped asking (laughs) Um, but uh yeah i i still think that in terms of being in academia and trying to make my way i think it's been easier to do that despite all of these other problems we've we're in our bubble being in a bubble and in this instance is better to shield ourselves from all of the well confusion that is brexit yeah absolutely race quite a prominent theme within sort of research into homelessness and criminalization in this period? Racism is not as prominent as I thought it was going to be when I first started researching. I think what has happened with with race is it's become for me a, an element among other elements. Um, it's a structural barrier uh, among other ones. Um, very important, but not the only barrier and or compounded instance of of structural barriers uh, in my topic. There are other things like education, housing, healthcare, 
a myriad of things. Um, specifically, I would say lack of affordable housing has been also a very prominent uh, issue in, in homelessness uh, in, in my work. And I specifically deal with, as I said, at the end of the 20th century. So affordable housing was a big deal then. But race is, is a part of a group of issues and barriers that affect homelessness at the end of the 20th century and not the only focus. Is there a sort of an origin for your interest in in working on homelessness and criminalization? Yes, and that brings me to my topic, which is about well-being, which is about the well-being mechanism of a compartmentalization. Well, I'll start with what I wanted to talk about with you today, um, specifically in terms of well-being. I'd like to talk about compartmentalization, and what is that? Well, uh, compartmentalization is a uh, psychological defense mechanism used to avoid uh, mental discomfort and anxiety. Um, George, it allows you to separate thoughts from feelings, to manage short-term trauma, and be more graceful under pressure. As students, you know, we tend to have many balls in the air. We manage our student life, our personal life, and some of us are putting ourselves through school. We also might be dealing with some form of trauma. Uh, for my part, to answer your question, I've had to deal with a delayed reaction to trauma from having been homeless myself. Uh, so compartmentalization allowed me to set aside my trauma and get tasks done. Uh, the problem with this technique is eventually you, you will have to deal with your demons. So you can't just put them off and you know, deal with the problem later. My PTSD, uh, which is you hear about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, with soldiers coming home from war, but uh, there are other forms of that. Uh, and we don't realize that we see it on TV, we see the soldiers, but there's a lot of trauma that you know, women who might have experienced some physical uh, abuse, or men, uh, or, or childhood trauma, being adult children of alcoholics, etc. So there's a lot of things that we have to deal with individually. So my PTSD caught up with me last year uh, when I began to study homelessness um, more specifically. And an important step to managing the symptoms was uh, knowing how to ask for help and using my network of services, uh, which is what I did. Thank you for for sharing that it must have been an incredibly challenging thing to to deal with as you say there's a very much a kind of cultural image of ptsd and who deals with that which is actually at odds with statistically as you said it's most likely to affect people who've come from abusive families or abusive relationships or or people with childhood trauma but it the the narrative is very much controlled by the kind of uh the returning soldier uh sort of concept which probably has something to do with its origins appearing in the DSM after the Vietnam War. My Uh, father was a Vietnam veteran, and uh, he did two tours, and uh, he had severe PTSD. So uh, my mother would tell me about, you know, some of the instances and so forth. So I kind of knew it from from our own family history. But then when I had my own trauma, it took a while to recognize the symptoms actually because they weren't the ones that my father had. uh, So I thought, well, you know, just suck it up and, you know, deal with your depression and, you know, deal with, uh, you know, uh, weight gain and all all the things, all the symptoms that I was dealing with weren't as traumatic. And I thought, well, I'm from a privileged home. How is it that I can have these symptoms? Well, it's not about privilege, is it? It's about what trauma that you've experienced in the past and how you 
your mind deals with it and you have to be in touch with that. Absolutely. So compartmentalization is something, is it this something that you've kind of started to use in your life fairly recently? No, it was, it is a, I've used it all my life. I didn't know what, what I was, what the term was. I've always been able to be graceful under pressure as it were. And I didn't know why. So that uh, my weakness and my strengths seem to be on the same spectrum since that I was able to use the use the device but on the long in the long term if you if you use it a lot you again you have to pay the piper you will have to eventually deal with the elephant in the room so you know you have to uh, to learn how to deal with things in a long term as well as a short to midterm so yeah I've always been using it. I think we all use it we're not really aware some of it some of us use it more than others but yeah um, again long-term trauma requires uh, other other skills and we have to be able to adapt to that. Could you perhaps explain a little bit more about how how you apply it? How one applies it if you would rather not be Sh- sure. Too specific? Um, uh, I can I can say well for example PTSD when you have that you have certain triggers the cold or a sound or uh, a smell or something like that. Well what I did is I basically just said, okay, uh, I set myself a lot of really, really tight schedules and framework. So I would have to prioritize getting certain tasks done, literally checking off lists and focusing on the lists. Uh, so what I'm doing with that is I'm saying, okay, uh, I'm dealing with the trauma. Yes, it's here. It's what my trigger. One of my triggers is the cold, uh, uh, having lived on the street. So I have to coach myself out of that and say, okay, remember, I have to get my list done. I've got this reading I've got to get done today. This was so the, the list becomes so important. And then you just have to put the pain or the trauma in a drawer. And it was difficult in the first year because I wasn't expecting the cold to be so cold. And, you know, the cold here gets in your bones. So I really had to, first of all, you know, make sure I was dressing properly, you know, f- for that really extreme moisture cold and and just, you know, deal with that, you know. Uh, put it in a drawer and then take the list out and then focus on that list. Uh, so it's really a, a matter of concentration. You have to have, I think, a very strong will to do that. Yeah, it does sound like you have to have a very strong will and especially as someone who is triggered by the cold, I can imagine that, Manchester is a, yeah a challenging place to live if you weren't expecting how how cold it can get here I can imagine that that would have taken a, a great deal of will so you've mentioned a couple of times now that you can put things in a drawer temporarily but then there is a time where you need to to take them out essentially and presumably do something with the the feelings that you've been putting to one side mm. have you found a good strategy for dealing with those yes well first of all uh you it's been difficult for me because in my culture an african-american culture and there is a distinct one in since the way that we're raised we are raised as african-american women are raised to not necessarily be in touch with our bodies we I think we're taught, or I was taught in my generation, to put aside any sort of personal need and focus on giving to others. Um, And not being aware when I was tired, not being aware 
when I was hungry and that kind of thing. Uh, so first thing was to do sports and activities that brought me back in the room and back in my body to be more self-aware of what my needs when I'm tired, when I need to sleep, but you have to know when you're tired to do that. So there's that aspect. Then there's the aspect of knowing how to say, I, I need help. I can't do this alone. Um, we're raised to be very independent and strong, but that can work against you when you don't know what your weaknesses are. So asking for help getting counseling. So I uh, started to see a, someone here, um, here meaning in the UK, get counseling uh, to talk it out, talk about some things uh, that I needed to address with, with, with a professional. Also, I have a dog, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm getting some free oxytocin there. Um, yeah, so yeah, that, that's, that was really important for me because one of the other problems that I have is the attachment disorder. So I've I'm learning to, you know, express and give love more, more freely and more easily. And uh, a dog is a great way to do that, you know, in a safe environment, you know. So yeah. I'm really grateful for that, too. Absolutely. And I think you're touching on a lot of the, you know, for even for people who aren't dealing with something as extreme as PTSD, you know, these ways to well-being, to be active, to be conscious of your body to be aware of its needs to try and give love to others and through that find a way to uh to give love back to yourself right like these are all strategies that that can be applied by anyone to have a, a happier healthier life during the extremely intense experience of doing a PhD. Right, it's all about self-care. And I know that uh, activists and PhD students are very focused on their work and we're focused on our work and we tend to, to forget about our basic needs. And I don't think it's a good idea to sacrifice one's health for any reason, specific, even if it's, you know, for something as great as getting a PhD, yeah. I think we can often fall into the trap of thinking it's such a short time, you know, I can, I can not take care of myself for, you know, a week just to get this project done, to get this thing finished. I can put my, you know, I can have less sleep or I can not run this week or whatever. And then, but it, as you, uh, as you say, if you neglect those things, they will come back to you. Well, and also you're making some choices and you're developing bad habits, which if you keep practicing those, will come back and bite you. <laughs> <laughs> years down the line a question that i'm very interested in then is that if you have come to the study of homelessness and criminalization through personal experience is it very difficult to uh to separate your your feelings from your research mm, excellent question yeah uh, first year it was really hard because i was trying to just deal with my own homeless i never spoke about it with anyone. The first person I spoke about it to was my supervisor, Dr. David Brown. Uh, and uh, I, I never even, pronouncing the words, uh, you know, was even traumatic for me. But once I got, you know, once you come out of the closet, as it were, uh, to any and all who are in the closet for some reason or another, once you, you know, come out of that closet, it is so liberating. Um, but then you have to manage all the feelings that come with it. So again, compartmentalization, if I can you know, go back to that, you have to learn to be, well, I wouldn't say dispassionate, but perhaps to direct that energy a little bit more efficiently. Yeah. Um, I know that we have to be, we're, we're scientists and researchers, and we have to be you know, very serious and 
uh, about our topic, but I think that passion, there is a place for passion. Um, but you have to learn how to channel that in a, in a very professional manner and you know, keep your wits about you, as it were. But uh, use that energy to stay up a little bit later to maybe to read a bit more or, you know, use it maybe to go out. I think that something that helps my research, strangely enough, is art and it has nothing to do with homelessness. Although there's a great arts and homeless movement going on in the UK at the moment, um, I find, you know, going out and feeding the passion through other things gives me the energy to come back and work better, uh, more efficiently, and be more, have more clarity of, of vision and thinking, uh, bring that back to my work. Um, and yes, history can be a very, you know, a passionate subject. You know, you can really, you know, delve into uh, your, your, your desire to, to learn and to understand and to see patterns for history. That can be a very passionate process. Of course, if we didn't have passion for our subject, maintaining the momentum that's required to get through this multiple-year process is, is much harder if you don't care. Yeah, and it was particularly difficult for me to be to address another aspect that you so basically uh, picked up on uh, was to say that, you know, it's difficult to be me and not me, to be the subject that I'm studying, to, to, to stand outside of myself and observe. So it's really great that I can put the subject in another a part of history so that I can get the proper distance because you do have to have that distance even though you have the passion you have to have distance to be able to think clearly to get your you know the rational elements the quantitative and qualitative aspects of research up to snuff that's going to get you through your PhD. A really interesting insight into what must be quite a quite a large challenge I suppose like something that as you kind of alluded to it that it that your first year was dominated by developing these strategies that were going to work so that you could do your research in a way that was successful and healthy. So thank you for sharing that. I think it's a, a fascinating insight. One of the things that we ask every guest to do is to bring some kind of funny anecdote or story from their research life. And I was wondering if you had anything to share with us. Yeah, well, Georgia, my story isn't so much funny as, as fun. Um, in July 2018, I was accepted into the Oxford Digital Humanities Summer School. Uh, aside from the um, increase in technical knowledge on digital platforms, such as, you know, uh, learning about data analysis or crowdsourcing it was a great opportunity to you know network and as we say back home to work the room after events like these of being able to connect with other phd students scholars professors and researchers in various fields was really really enriching but you can't just stand around at these events and hope somebody will come to you you have to be proactive and make the first move so when you go to conferences or, I don't know, symposiums or, you know, just coffees, getting to know you, so meet and greet kind of events, you know. I think one of the, re one of the ways I like to prepare for those kinds of things, because you kind of do have to prepare a little bit, is to get your, you know, media footprint, up, social media footprint up to date. I like to use Twitter or LinkedIn for the QR codes. You can scan other people's you know, QR codes and make contacts really easily. Anyway, so um, at one point, on the first day of my summer school, I noticed that there was, I was sitting in a row with, you know, four other people, women from the UK, Australia, Egypt, and myself, a Franco-American. 
And I had the idea to take a group selfie with these ladies and to submit the picture to the summer school uh, photo contest. And I named the photo Diversity. And I, I was one of the three winners of the contest. So it's great. It was a really great ego boost for me to, to win that contest. And, you know, we non-millennials aren't supposed to be so comfortable with self-promotion or IT, but I think that's a cliche, Georgia. I feel like you, know, you, you can't limit yourself to being labeled or pigeonholed into some kind of stereotype. You just have to take calculated risks, like walking up to people at events and just starting conversation um, it's about knowing your strengths and playing to them. And I'm, I'm a highly functioning, you know, introvert, but I'm a risk taker too. So I guess it worked out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right that those stereotypes, I mean, I don't think they hold much water at all because I am a millennial and I'm rubbish on social media. I always get, uh, Anna normally does the social media promotion of the podcast and things like that. We can all come out of our comfort zones a little bit, even though I'm an extroverted person. Working the room at an event fills me with dread just because I feel like I'm saying the same thing again and again and it's just getting more and more trite and I I just really struggle with with that aspect of it. So I just try and make it into something fun or find yeah. two or three like-minded people. And Yeah, well, one thing if I can give you the uh, how to make friends and influence people technique, um, you know, you want to get people to talk about themselves. And I just walk up to someone and I say, so... What's your story? And then there you go. And they go on and on. And eventually, you know, you get asked questions and then, you know, you're in a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that helps a lot is with making the podcast and things like that is that I love to listen to people talk about themselves and talk about their research. Human beings are the most interesting thing in my mind. Uh, and so finding out about, yeah, someone's story or how someone, how their research is going is takes the pressure off you as well like you don't have to just keep saying like oh i work on this uh so yeah it's good advice yeah minimal effort optimal result <laughs> yeah absolutely and also from the make friends and influence people repeat people's names back to them it's great for remembering their names great for uh, i'm terrible with names that oh god it's just uh, i i have to write it down i'm a visual learner for names otherwise i'm auditive but yeah it's a big challenge for me but it work we, we all overcome our particular challenges so thank you so much for taking the time to join me today it has been an extremely insightful and interesting experience for me thanks for having me don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast not safe for publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the university of manchester if you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NSFP Podcast. Have an adequately happy existence.